All right. Um, so this is uh, the second month of the year, and in a very informal way, I kind of try to reflect on at least some aspect of my understanding of of a connection between Buddhism and the Twelve Steps and each month, and and particularly something about the step of the month. And sometimes I don't even uh, do even that level of uh, being uh, systematic. But uh, tonight I, I do want to talk about an aspect of step two. So step two says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I realized as I, as I was actually running, letting that step go through my mind in literal, the words, specific words uh, today, after I had already kind of prepared this talk, that my own understanding of the step has moved so far away from the, the language, the, the kind of uh, literal language and uh, maybe even how I understood it originally, that when I start to talk about the step, it might be hard for someone to realize what this connection is that I'm making. Uh, so I have to back up a bit and give you a general idea of how I understand this step which is that first of all I, I you know I kind of take out the idea I don't I don't think of it as the idea that there's some uh, uh, superpower or higher power or God being uh, intervening in my life to make me not be crazy you know which is one way of like hearing the step you know I believe that a God will you know, restore me to sanity, and a power greater than myself. So, uh, um, so obviously, immediately that takes it out of the sort of what I would call sort of a traditional way of understanding this step. Um, and but I, you know, I also and and I think that there are people who do believe in that very literal, sort of religious almost view of the step. But I also am going to guess that a large percentage of people who work the steps don't think of it in those literal terms. You know, because one of the risks of believing in that some higher power is inter- has intervened in your life is that if you don't have any agency in your own change, then you may not have any, that means you have no control over what happens in your life. So if that higher power turns on you, you know, you could be in trouble, right? I mean, why did, if you're, if they've just randomly chosen you, what if they change their mind or decide, okay, it's enough of them. I'm going to move on to someone else, you know. So I, I, I think that's a, a, a risky proposition. And even people who believe that literally what 
I see is that mostly what they do in terms of how they live, they don't sit around waiting for God to fix them and to, to intervene in their lives. They're very active, and as you know, as the steps and as as well as the Dharma encourage us to be to engage in a process, engage in our spiritual growth, and engage in our recovery. So now that I've told you what I don't think the step means. In the broadest terms, what I think the step means is that we believe that we have the capacity and that there are tools to help us to recover and to maintain our recovery. I don't use the word sobriety much anymore, and I used to use that when I first wrote One Breath at a Time. I usually said sobriety, and it was probably when I met Tom Catton in Hawaii, and he was like, you know, for people in NA, we don't talk about being sober, and I sort of started to realize how much of my audience or my community uh, needed to hear different language, and so I, I say recovery. Sometimes it's awkward to fit in the word recovery. Uh, anyway, that was a side uh, linguistic issue. Um, so if this step is about believing that we can change, I think that's enough because I think that's a critical belief to have when we are having trouble with getting sober or clean or, see, that's why I have trouble sometimes finding a different word, getting into recovery. There can be this feeling either that I can't do it, so I don't believe in my own capacity, or that this program doesn't work, or whatever program or process we're engaged in doesn't work. So that's not believing in the external tools. And if there isn't that belief, what the way we behave is that we act on our beliefs, and we act on our non-beliefs. If I believe I can't get sober, then I just go to a bar. You know, like, oh, well, forget it. I can't do it. You know, I can't meditate. So what do I do? I don't sit still and close my eyes and try to follow my breath. I just say I can't do it. So that belief is critical to what we do, to our engagement in a process. Without that belief, we won't engage in the process. So then... You know, I, I like to, then the next question is, what is it that I'm believing in? Uh, and I guess we sort of want to know how it works. Or, or if I don't believe, what is, it that I, what is it that I believe if I don't believe? So this is one of the ways I like to frame this, that in, in Buddhist terms, coming to the uh, a Dharma understanding of this, that the, and one of the core principles of the Dharma is the law of karma, which is simply the law that says actions have results. And particularly, as the Buddha talks about it, intentional actions have results that are directly related to the intention and the action. So, you know... If I plant tomato seeds, I don't get cucumbers. You know, that's just the way it is. 
And if I'm, you know, angry and violent towards people, they get angry <laughs> with me and maybe put me in jail. You know. um, if I'm kind and generous, my relationships tend to be more comfortable because people respond to that, right? I mean, these are just simplistic uh, descriptions of the law of karma. So when it comes to recovery, if I don't drink, I don't get drunk. Right? Well, basic principle, right? If I don't take drugs, I don't get loaded. Uh, if I don't act on my addiction, then it, you know, I, I, not only do I not get addicted or get intoxicated, but what's more important is that I undermine my addictive tendency because addiction is founded in a repeated action that, uh, that becomes habituated and eventually becomes addiction. And so that's, that's a cause and effect relationship. That's the law of karma working itself out. You know, I have a drink. I like it. I decide to have another drink. I like it even more. I keep drinking, you know, the next day. I'm like, oh, I liked that. I think I'll do it again. You know, and as we know, in the beginning, this is a choice, and then eventually, drugs, food, sex, gambling, whatever your addiction is, it stops being a choice, and you are being dictated to by your addiction. So that's cause and effect through actions, repeated actions, ingrain that habit until it becomes an addiction. So... Consequently, by that principle of cause and effect, the reverse is also true. If I stop doing something, and one day at a time, or one breath at a time, I don't act on that, that tendency to do it becomes weaker and weaker. And many people find that, as we say, the, the obsession is removed. You know, that, uh, you know, I personally don't... I rarely... <laughs> get the craving to drink you know, or take drugs. And, and that's largely because of that uh, you know, uh, cause and effect. You know. um, it doesn't mean that, of course, you know, all it takes is to just once more you know, take the action. And you can, that's why relapse is so dangerous. That... that uh, you know, when, when you've done something addictively for a long period of time, you're well-trained, you know. So even if you take a break of 10 years or so, you know, you, you go back and, oh, yeah, I remember this. I know how to do this. Bam. You know, we hear those stories so often. Thank, thank God, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, I haven't had to, to do that myself. Uh, so... Uh, this really is the topic I wanted to talk about tonight, is the law of karma. And it's so central to the Buddhist teachings. And, and as I say, I think it's central to recovery in many ways. I actually wrote some notes. And there's not even notes. It's more like a few paragraphs. So uh, just put this in framework of some of the Buddhist teachings. 
I want to talk about it in the framework of what the Buddha calls right view. This is part of the Eightfold Path, which is the, the Buddhist path of spiritual growth and spiritual transformation. And, and right view is the first element of the Eightfold Path. There are several components to right view. So right view means that we, we really see the way things are. We're not in denial. We're not deluding ourselves. Uh, we're not, we don't have beliefs based on just ideology or uh, you know, uh, uh, superstition or something like that. We really look, it's, it's kind of scientific in a way. Another thing that I, I think draws many of us to Buddhism is that very practical approach. So the Buddha says, right view includes understanding the Four Noble Truths, so understanding suffering and how it arises, how it arises through grasping, just the same way that addiction arises, and how when we stop grasping, we stop pushing away and being in conflict with the way things are, that, that we let go of suffering, that suffering ends very naturally through that process. So the Four Noble Truths are the truth of suffering, the truth of its cause, the clinging, the truth that it ends when we stop clinging or grasping, and the truth of the way to the end, which is his path. Again, that's the Eightfold Path. Another aspect of right view is seeing how everything is constantly changing, seeing impermanence, and all the implications of that, that because they, there are two other uh, sort of insights that come along with seeing impermanence. One is that that's one of the reasons why we can't hold on to anything, why clinging doesn't work, because things are constantly changing. So impermanence is directly related to suffering. To our, uh, and then not-self, this third sort of insight, which is that if everything is constantly changing, including my thoughts, feelings, body, you know, everything about what I call me, then where is me? There is no solid self. That's, uh, you know, the, the graduate level insight. Self. We, don't, we don't try to grasp that one. But this third component of right view is understanding the law of karma. And so, uh, you know, the, uh, let me just say one of the things that I find interesting about the law of karma is that it's actually, it's about how do things work? What makes things happen? How can I make things happen the way I want them to? So in our personal lives, it's a question we're constantly asking ourselves. We don't probably usually frame it as this is the law, I'm thinking about the law of karma, but it's really what we're asking ourselves much of the time. What should I do for my work? Where shall I, where, where will I go for dinner that I will enjoy the most? It's just like cause and effect, right? Um, you know, who should I marry? Who should be my partner? What, trying to predict, right? Our relationship to the law of karma is a lot about predicting. And it, in fact, uh, laws and the government 
a lot of what the government does is try to figure out cause and effect as well. Like some politicians believe that you know, if you give money to people, it will make them dependent. So you shouldn't have um, welfare. Other people say, no, if you give money to people, it will give them a chance to rise up and you know, improve themselves. So that's an argument about karma, right? about how does ca how, what cause brings what effect. So it's, this, this is something that's really uh, involved in so much of our lives. And, you know, the Buddha says that if, if there weren't such a thing as karma, that he wouldn't even teach what he teaches. Because if, if for instance, everything was preordained, if there was some power that kind of set everything up, which is a certain kind of religious belief that some people have, and some people had it at the time of the Buddha as well. It was one of the things called wrong view, according to the Buddha, that, oh, everything is fated, so you have no control over your fate, over your destiny. It's just meant, you know. And of course, that's a very convenient thing to do for the people who are in power, to say, oh, well, you know, it's just, I didn't really, you know, it's not my fault that you're poor. You know, that's just God wanted it to be that way. Sure. We've heard that one before. So, so the Buddha says it's really important to understand karma. But at the same time, he says, if you try to unravel your own karma, like, you know, why is my life exactly the way it is? that you'll drive yourself crazy. You know, if you try, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, psychoanalysis, no, maybe. In a way, you know, not that that drives you crazy, but that, that you can't sort of figure it all out. You know, what he's pointing to is that what we want to do is we want to know the specific causes for, us, for why our life is the way it is, and then we want to create the specific causes that will get us what we want. So we want to control the law of karma. We want to say, okay, I understand the law of karma. Now, if I do this, if I give money to this poor person on the street, then, because I'm being generous, the law of karma will reward me by giving, letting me win the lottery, you know. Or whatever, right? We we kind of and we try to make these bargains. Mm -hmm. Some people say it's a bargain with God, where you can say it's a, you know, uh, for me, God and the law of karma are actually synonyms. Um, so we all want to control our karma, right? Um, the problem is that the causes and conditions that bring about every discrete event in our lives are so complex that we couldn't possibly control them. So I, I started to make a list. Well, so th this reminds me of something that Lee Brasington, who's one of my teachers, says. He says that we are streams of dependently arising phenomena interacting. <laughs> All right, I'll just a little light. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> Dharma, Dharma teaching. The key phrase here, though, is dependently arising. That is to say, the, every, everything depends upon everything else. Mm -hmm. 
Everything is so interrelated. You can't unravel it all. So I, I started to make a list of some of the streams. Some of them are historical. So just the fact that we are on this land goes back hundreds of years to, you know, to people coming from Europe and then doing what they did to this country, to this land, and then arriving here. Some of it for each of us is genetic, you know, the way we look, for one thing, um, and our health, largely genetic, you know, um, so much as we try to control it, or, you know, eating the right foods and all, doing all the right things, and, and we get old and sick and die anyway. Um, some of it is uh, psychological. Some of, our, some of the streams of, of why we are here tonight. Some of it has to do with nature. Just the fact that there is life on this planet. Um, cultural, tremendous, you know, cultural imp- powers and, and influences. Uh, you know, familial, of course, you know, who we were, where we were raised. There's so many different factors in our lives that we don't control, that we can't unravel that. So controlling all these streams to get the exact results we want is beyond impossible. So when the Buddha says we should understand karma, what's he saying? He's pointing to a more general concept. That we need to learn kind of the basics and try to follow the guidelines. So it's not that we should try to control how things go. In fact, we need to let go of control because the part of us that wants to control is self-centered, self-seeking. It expresses greed, aversion, it's it's all the things that cause suffering. You know, what what the the part of us that wants to control everything is what creates the what that is the definition of the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. So in order to come into harmony with karma, we have to let go of our wish to control. And instead, we could say, turn our will and our lives over to the wisdom, the spiritual wisdom that is offered to us in really every religious tradition. But the, the Buddhist tradition gives us some, some good guidelines, which I'm going to talk about. But what I, the way I like to think of what the Buddha was teaching is that he was teaching us how to align our behaviors internally and externally with the law of karma. You could say that's what the Eightfold Path is, a a description of things that we need to live in harmony with, align ourselves with. So 
some of the more obvious things that the Buddha offers as guidelines, first of all, is the five precepts. So we encounter similar uh, precepts in, in, uh, in different religions, not to kill, not to steal, not to harm with our sexuality, not to harm with our speech, not to use intoxicants. The first four are you know, morally uh, really found in virtually every religion. And the last one uh, is just in a, in a few uh, so this is obviously for addicts, you know, this is kind of our starting point, is following the precepts. It's, it's, and, for, and for some people in recovery, I'd say it's the starting and the end. It's basically just that's all they kind of want to do is to stop behaving in those destructive ways and selfish ways and try to live more. A moral life. I, I, that's not fair to say for some people. I, uh, because I'd have to say that I think uh, that, that people who really work uh, a recovery program, besides trying to not do the wrong thing, also really try to do the right thing, and that there's a tremendous amount of kindness and generosity and um, compassion in the recovery world. Um, so, just but the precepts themselves, you know, when when I first came to to study Dharma, which is before I got sober, I kind of thought of them as the the kindergarten version of Buddhism. It's like, oh yeah, I got that, you know. I mean, intoxicants, you know, whatever. You know, you know. Let's not get all moralistic and on, on this stuff, you know. Um, and, you know, I can be mindful when I'm, you know, had a few drinks. It's just, you know, in fact, I kind of need to be to, just to stand up straight, actually. But I see that almost uh, the opposite now. And, and it's clear uh, from certain Buddhist teachings that the Buddha saw the precepts as being the starting point. Of developing a spiritual path, and that that in the West we kind of uh, have flipped on its head the Buddha's teachings. Whereas the Buddha said, "This is in Pali: Sila Samadhi Panya, that is morality, meditation, wisdom. That that's the process. You have to establish morality, and then you develop your meditation, and then you develop wisdom. In the West, we wanted wisdom." I'll read that book that's got all the smart insights in it, and then maybe I'll try meditating. And after I've been meditating for a while, I was like, oh, wow, geez, maybe I better clean up my behavior. Uh, and we finally figure it out. That was kind of how it worked for me anyway. Uh, some are quicker than others. Or sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. That's the expression I'm thinking of. So the, the precepts, you know, uh, my my favorite reflection about the precepts, when uh, when I was trying to sort of get clear about why they're so important, because I, you know I haven't killed any humans uh, during my lifetime, uh, and stealing. You know, I've been pretty good 
with the precepts, you know, especially since I've been sober and especially since I've been married and sober. That kept, took care of some of the others. Um, but uh, the, what I like to take as a reflection is what if, if you think the precepts are like, okay, like I did, like kindergarten spirituality, what if everybody in the world just followed one of the precepts. We all agreed we were just going to follow one precept. How the world would change, you know, if if nobody killed another human being, you know. And yet, how many people <laughs> go around killing people? You know, uh, you know, it's most people don't. You know, uh, some people, you know, do in the course of war, uh, and others have accidents where someone gets killed and and uh, and then some people uh, you know lose control and or for some other reason but that's got to be an incredibly tiny proportion of people and yet it has such an impact you know it's just well anyway or if nobody in the world ever lied you know wow i mean and yet are are the people in this room going around lying all the time? No, but we know that there are really uh, destructive lies being told every day. You know. you know, again, I was talking to my daughter about sort of these general things about uh, the world, and and uh, you know, I said, well, it's there's just a really small percentage of people that cause most of the problems in the world. And unfortunately, they're the ones who have the most power and money. You know? And maybe, as they say, you know, power corrupts. Maybe they, they do the bad things because they're powerful. And maybe, I mean, even when I look at our current president, you know, once you get into that position, there are choices you have to make already. I mean, it's one reason I turned them down when they asked me to, to run. You know, because I just... It's like, no, I couldn't do that. I mean, I had no, I didn't have much, much of a chance, but, you know. All right, that was silly. So, following the precepts, just to get back to this topic of karma and recovery, following the precepts, we could say, is one of the powers that restores us to sanity. Just by acting differently, the, the, that action brings about a result of, first of all, you're not using intoxicants and you're not lying, cheating, and stealing anymore. And that has a huge effect on your life. You don't get to choose exactly what that effect is you know, how it manifests. It's just that it's good, right? It's just, it's good. It, it goes, it inclines in a positive direction. And this is how, you know, I think about my relationship to karma, that I try to align my behavior internally and externally with the law of karma. And then when I do that, it inclines toward good or peace or harmony. 
in my life. Doesn't mean I get the job or the, uh, you know, any particular results, specific results that I want, but it it means that things just continue to unfold in positive ways. And and of course, one of the problems for addicts is that we're we're kind of in a hurry. You know, we have this impatience thing, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to change our consciousness instantly with an intoxicant. Uh, and karma doesn't work like that. You know, following precepts doesn't work on our schedule. It doesn't uh, it usually work quickly. You know, when I look back over my decades of recovery, I see long periods, you know, each sort of eras of recovery, which were, are like five-year eras or ten-year eras. And, you know, when you're in the middle of those eras, you're like, when, you know, where am I going? What's going to happen? You know, when I was in school or when I was single trying to get, wanted to be in a relationship or, you know, when I was working a job that I really wasn't interested in, it was like, oh, you know, this isn't, I don't have what I want, but, uh, you know, I, I was living by the principles, you know, doing the next right thing, not trying to do the th- right thing that was down there that I go, oh, I want to do that thing. No, I, I didn't get to do that, you know. Um, it's almost uh, well. I'll, I'll talk about some of these other things. So, uh, so when the Buddha teaches the four noble truths, he's and so in terms of having right view around the four noble truths, what he's teaching us is this fundamental principle that acting on our Craving is not the way to happiness. That 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 acquiring things, uh, getting rich, powerful, or famous, is not the answer. Isn't going to bring lasting satisfaction. And so again, that's about karma. You know, if you think that getting a lot of money brings happiness, then you take the actions that bring about getting a lot of money. And, but the, the result of that actually isn't happiness. It does not necessarily unhappiness. I mean, obviously there are happy, rich people. I hate them. But, you know, uh, I mean, just, you know, don't you always love it when rich people are like, oh, they're so miserable, you know, their kids are all terrible. You know, you can, yeah, I know. They're all spoiled, you know. It's great. Plus, they all have the measles now, so, yeah. I'm sorry. So that was, delete that, okay. All right. So, it turns out, in fact, that the Four Noble Truths are uh, about cause and effect. And the, oddly, this is a, you know, Buddhist fun facts. You can save this one up for a cocktail party or, or wherever, wherever we talk. I don't know. Um, a meeting, after a meeting. No, that won't work there either. Anyway, the way the Four Noble Truths are laid out is they, instead of going cause and effect, cause and effect, they go effect, cause, effect, cause. Meaning the first Noble Truth is 
that there is suffering, the second noble truth is what causes suffering. So it's kind of backwards. And then the third noble truth is that suffering ends, and the fourth noble truth is what makes it end. It's, you'd have to ask him why he chose to teach it that way. Um, but this is right view, seeing what, what brings happiness. Right? This is the question we all, we all want to know. And the, you know, the fun, basic thing that the Buddha says is that what brings happiness is letting go. And of course, as addicts in recovery, we see that in stark terms in our own lives. In the, mo- in the most transformative action that we take is that step away from, that relinquishing, that letting go of our addictive behavior. The thing that we thought we needed the most, you know, the thing that we wanted the most, the thing that we did in order to be happy or something, we find that it's letting go of that that brings happiness. So people, this is one of the reasons that I love working with people in recovery because this concept, the second noble truth, the truth that, causes, that suffering is caused by clinging, is not an abstraction to someone in recovery. It is their life. It's the, the most important fact of their life. And once we see that, then we see that, oh, it's not just clinging to my drug of choice that causes suffering. Then we can start to reflect and see all the ways that we cling. And, and without being a Buddhist, we see many people in recovery who start to look at different aspects of their behaviors and their thinking and their emotional habits that are clinging, that they're clinging to, that aren't working, that they see aren't working. And that's, that's right view, seeing, oh, this is causing that. Oh, you know, and, and that willingness that we get through that big letting go gives us the willingness then to examine other things and start to, you know, it can really shift your whole worldview about how things work, you know, how, what, you know, cause and effect. What really is going to bring me happiness? You know, I've got to be with this person. And then you realize, no, they're driving me crazy. Why do I, th- you know, why do- it made me think I had to be with them. You know, it's obsession, right? It's addiction. No. Um, and and that, that, that learning to, to um, turn it over and go, oh, I didn't get the job that I just was dying to get. Wow. And, you know, we have expressions like, well, God must have something else in store for me, which is just saying the law of karma must have something else in store for me because I'm doing the next right thing. I know that I'm, you know, okay, let me check out. The first question we usually ask is, oh, is there something, was I off on something with this maybe? And then we examine that. That's the, that's the inventory. Like, what was my part in it? And then it's like, okay, maybe that was a little off, but I think my intention was right. So this just wasn't meant to happen. This wasn't the, you know, what the law of karma had in store. So something else is going to happen. Yeah. I remember when I w- was in my last semester of graduate school, 
1995, and I had worked really hard uh, writing. Some, I was in graduate school in creative writing. I had written a novel, and uh, you know, I'd gone through this whole thing of thinking it was going to get published, and then it didn't, and it was rejected. And then I wrote some screenplays, and none of them, and. Here I was coming up to, you know, I'd been in school for seven years from getting my BA and then my MFA. And, and I just had this terrible feeling like, oh, you know, I've invested all this time. You know, I was trying to do the right thing and, and you know, nothing's come out of it. This, you know, I failed or what's going to happen now, you know. And I was in Irvine. I was in graduate school in Irvine. And I remember this guy in this meeting, it was a men's meeting I would go to on Tuesday nights down there. He was a judge, actually, in Los Angeles. Um, maybe he was retired, but anyway, I remember him saying, you know, I want you to get in touch with me. In one year, you're going to be, everything's going to be different. You know, you know, just, you know, just you know, don't panic, you know. In a year, you're going to see. And I kind of like, maybe, you know, but you know, we'll see, you know. And it was almost exactly a year later that I got my first, like, solid, safe job you know, after graduate school. And I had to go through this whole, like, I'm a failure, and then working temp jobs, and, you know, and what am I going to do with, you know, I'm got an MFA and I'm doing data entry and, and finally wound up with a technical writing job, which is a really good job and, and uh, you know, was a, was a career for a, over a decade. Um, and as I say, it wasn't what I was working towards or what I wanted, you know, I didn't get to control that, but it was good, you know, it, it was good. It, was, it allowed for what I needed in my life and, and I learned a lot through doing it. Uh, both practically and, and more uh, spiritually and emotionally. Um, so, turning it over. So the, the last thing I'll, I'll just give as a piece, I'll talk about as a piece about mindfulness, and this is, is, is about mindfulness, and this is kind of to bring it back to what, we're do, what we do here, the meditation process. Um, Partly to, to talk about it as meditation, that that again we we come to meditation, and, and this is what I have talked about a couple times tonight about how you know we sit down and we sort of have expectations about what's supposed to happen or what we want to have happen. You know, we've heard about meditations like, oh, I'm going to be so peaceful. It's going to be, and we sit down. And we're barraged by the five hindrances: desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. You know, and you know, we feel like nothing's happening. What's wrong with me, you know, or I can't do this, or this isn't the right thing for me, I, maybe I'll go to the Sufi dancing, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and it's, again, realizing, oh, this, is, this doesn't happen on my schedule. You know, and we, as we do in the recovery world, we see that there are other people who have had success with this, and they tell us, just hang in, just keep showing up, you know. It doesn't happen in your time, you know, and it will unfold in that way. 
So, yeah, uh, this practice, uh, just like recovery, it's one day at a time. It's one breath at a time. We, we have to keep showing up. It doesn't happen uh, through the grace of Buddha, you know. You can bow and pray all you want to Buddha. He's dead, you know. <laughs> You're not going to do anything for you. you know? <laughs> you got to show up and do the work yourself. And it's not always pleasant, you know. It's, not, it's like the first 30 days of, or 30 years of sobriety. Right? <laughs> it's... Uh, you know, there's, there's challenges, but if we want, you know, if you want what you got, then keep doing what you're doing or something like that. Right? There's some line like that in the recovery world. If you want what someone else has, see what they do. And what, what meditators do is they show up and they meditate through the ups and downs, through the noise and through the calm and, th- and through the pain and through the pleasure. And you just keep showing up and sitting. Mindfulness itself, though, has broader implications than just meditating. If we are going to follow the precepts and not break those things, we need to be present and awake. Because otherwise, we're just acting on automatic pilot. And our automatic pilot tends to be kind of like Denzel in flight. Did you ever see that one? You know, that's, that's kind of my automatic pilot. Yeah, upside down. Yeah. Uh, don't see that movie because it's just (laughs) oh my god never want to be in a plane again if we are going to avoid falling into the traps of the four noble truths that that the four noble truths uh, you know tell us about if we're going to avoid continuously acting on craving we have to be present we have to be awake you know, we have to be conscious. We have to be mindful. Because, yeah. uh, again, our impulse, our natural human impulse, is to behave in these ways, to, to seek pleasure and, and push away pain. And, uh, you know, this was the kind of brilliant insight that the Buddha had. It's so counterintuitive. Because, you know, what we do when we look for causes is we... We look out there, and, and we just feel what we feel, and we look out there to how to make ourselves feel what, what we want to feel. So what we feel most of the time is that we want things to be different from the way they are. It's the basic feeling, <laughs> at least for me. That, and so that, that wanting things to be different from the way they are takes two forms. It takes the desire to f- have a pleasurable experience, and then it takes the form of an aversion from the unpleasant experience. Now, that makes perfect sense, and that's what makes the world turn and what makes our economy function. And It's kind of the way the world works. Of course, I want what I want, and I don't want what I don't want. And if I could just get enough of what I want and get rid of enough of the stuff that I don't want, then I'd be happy, joyous and free. You know, I'd be fine. And the Buddha comes along, watches this process very, very carefully, moment by moment, breath by breath, 
instant by instant, and he sees that what's actually happening isn't that I'm not getting enough of what, it's not that I'm not getting enough of what I want, and it's not that I'm getting too much of what I don't want. It's the wanting itself that's the problem. It's the wanting that's creating the problem. It's so brilliant, because it's that thing that's right in front of you that you can't see, because you're looking past it to the thing that you want. Of course I won't. So he, you know, he reverse engineers this process and sees, oh. And what's also beautiful about that is that now I'm not so subject to conditions of the world. When I, when there's something I don't have that I want, it's not such a problem. When, I, when there's something unpleasant that I'm experiencing, it's not such a problem. You know, it's, you know, acceptance is the answer to my problems today. It's the, you know, that's the, the 12-step corollary to this idea. I don't have to change things in order to be happy. All I have to change is my response or my reaction to the way things are. And then everything is okay. This is equanimity. This is the highest form of happiness in Buddhism, peace. So there you go. (laughs) Figured it all out. No more problems. So we have a couple minutes if there's a comment or question from anyone. Yes, exactly. Because right, we're never going to make the desire go Right, no. It's not a matter of getting rid of desire either. Because the, in Zen they say desires are uh, endless or infinite or something. You know, I vow to abandon them or something like that. So, yeah, no, it, it's... And it's not even that we shouldn't ever act on desires. It's to see, it's to see it, to feel it, and, and be able to... So, to me, in practical terms, this is about realizing that the desire is present, that I'm being motivated to act in some way or think in some way by a desire. And then, just by having that awareness, I can make a choice. Is this a skillful, useful desire? Or is this something that's going to lead to more suffering? Or it's okay (laughs) to try to get something as long as I understand that even if I get it, it's not going to bring lasting satisfaction. But still, yeah, there's, there's... it's kind of the, the absolute and the relative. We le- live in this relative world, and, and to pretend otherwise is to just sort of be a phony spiritual person, you know, kind of, to, uh, to me. Um, but as I, t- I talked about before, just seeing it, understanding it, is freeing in and of itself. 
because there, there's not so much of a sense of, I've got to get it, you know, it's like, oh, I'd like to, yeah, this, okay, yeah, and oh, great, well, I got it, but, you know, just, you just understand the context. That's wisdom. Talking about karma, uh, for me, it's become this real kind of close thing that mm-hmm. if I do these things, go to meetings, work the steps, accept what is, I feel comfortable in my own skin and I yeah. can sleep at night. Yeah. That's like the payoff. Yeah. That's kind of enough to start. Whereas before, I wasn't. Right. And, and the desire part of it is I desire what I hear, what I see other people have. I desire recovery. Yeah. Sanity. And I get it if I walk into the rooms. The second step that you started with is came to believe it's just I had to go walk in the rooms enough to start to feel sane. Yeah. And then I, then I believed it when I experienced it. Yeah. So I just, you know, just... Uh, and I had to understand the effects I was having on other people, hmm. which I either didn't give a shit about or right. was unaware of. And that's karma and working steps and doing the amends. And it all really has ties together in a very personal way. Yeah. And then I can sometimes expand it to everybody else. Right. Mm-hmm. No, and, and that's, that's how I've come to see karma as well, that... There is this tendency to think of it more in terms of externals, what I'm going to get or how, what's going to happen. Whereas, you know, the, the immediate emotional karma or effect of my actions and my thoughts, you know, internal and external, as I like to say, is felt here and now. And that that's more determinant to my happiness than than whether I get some external thing or not, and and it's also it's a good uh, barometer, as well, you know, because it's like oh that was I shouldn't have done that I feel that no, I shouldn't have said that oh you know, it's that feedback yeah thank you. Well, that's about all the time we have, so I want to just close with a a little uh, dedication. of us see clearly the causes and conditions for our own happiness and freedom and may we act on that clarity and may all beings see the causes and conditions for happiness and may they act on those causes. May they act in harmony with the law of karma. May all beings be free from the suffering of addictive behaviors. May all beings find happiness and peace.
Well, thank you. If I don't see you in the eight-week class, I hope I'll see you next month. Drive safely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.